Hello, good evening, and welcome to tonight's edition of Resistance TV. Uh, tonight, we're going to be discussing the potential impact of the Health and Care Bill on the National Health Service. The 2012 Health and Social Care Act facilitated the part privatisation of the NHS, but the bill currently before Parliament goes much further. It actually poses an existential threat to our healthcare system. But United Health, which is the largest health insurance company in the US, has been operating in the NHS since 2002, when Labour was supposed to be in power. So the gestation period for this latest threat has been about 20 years or so in the making. And it was Nye Bevan, who was the founding father of the NHS, who's reputed to have said that the NHS will last for as long as there are folk with the faith to fight for it. Well, one of those folk is GP Dr. Bob Gill, who produced the great NHS heist documentary to warn people that our NHS was imperiled. And so, Bob, it looks like your worst fears are coming to pass, doesn't it? I'm afraid so, uh, Chris. You know, this has been a, a long cross-party cross uh, betrayal of the public interest. And as you rightly point out, the NHS bill, uh, under the cover of the pandemic, uh, claiming to have learned lessons, will actually further extend the privatisation, which caused our woeful and inadequate catastrophic handling of the pandemic. It was a 2012 act that decimated public health, that started the outsourcing. We've had a decade of cuts and closures. So we were very, we were on, on our knees before the pandemic struck. And rather than learning the real lessons, which is privatization is deadly, this government is determined to see all the way through to the end, which, you know, Oliver Letwin and others spelt out in various documents over the years, which is a US-based system. And what the health bill will do, it will achieve certain things. The first, the most important thing it will achieve is to establish a new legal entity, a brand new public-private partnership called an integrated care system. The names keep changing, but what it is essentially is what's called managed care in America which was the subject of Michael Moore's film, Sicko. And what managed care is about, it's about maximizing profit through the denial of care. And, you know, the integrated care systems that are proposed will break the NHS up into 42 separate entities. Uh, these entities will be dominated by uh, boards, which are corporate controlled. So companies like Serco, Deloitte, United Health, Optum, will be on these boards. Interestingly, you know, research we've done shows the extent of United Health Optum's um, dominance of the backroom function of the NHS, because what they're interested in is not providing care. It's about controlling the flow of money and to siphon away of as much of that money away from patient care. So creation of ICSs is the first big threat. The second uh, legislative uh, disaster is repeal of section 75 now this is a bit technical but section 75 of the 2012 act essentially made it compulsory to have open competitive tendering now me and you don't want any competitive tendering and outsourcing but if it's going to be there it needs to be open and, and public scrutiny legal challenge all needs to be there we saw with the pandemic that billions were handed over in secretive crony deals what this new health bill will do will normalize the awarding of multi-billion pound contracts which will last decades to private companies 
and most interestingly, will remove the final barrier for a private uh, United Health Optum monopoly to control the budgets. A private monopoly within the NHS. This is quite staggering. So you have the creation of these new bodies, managed care in, by another name, the removal of legislation to, to block a monopoly, and various other changes, you know, including uh, removing um, protections for professionals, ensuring that you have qualified people delivering NHS care, uh, believe it or not, they don't want qualified people to deliver care because they're expensive. And the way you maximize profit is by employing the cheapest staff you can get away with and exploit. So that's another element of the plan. Um, and in due course, these, these new bodies, 42 of them, they will, well, they will be given a fixed budget from which they have to extract a profit. So you, you cut the wage bill, you cut the number of staff, you cut the qualified staff, and you cut the services. And the way they're going to cut services through an automated postcode lottery, which will be using Optum United Health software to, to first of all risk stratify, and then to decide, well, you're not worthy of your hip replacement for whatever reason. So you're going to have an automated deadly postcode lottery. I'm just going to ask you, Bob, what, what will it mean for patients? I mean, what, what difference will people see on the ground? Yeah, well, you know, patients are already uh, experiencing great difficulty, particularly accessing acute care. So if they go to an A&E, if you're lucky enough still to have one, you're going to face a very overstretched service. You'll be seeing relatively inexperienced and underqualified staff. Because there aren't any beds, you're going to be sent home. Higher risk is being taken by sending sick people home. So they're taking more chance with care. Now, if you look at what's happened to out-of-hours provision, we have now a 111 service, which is a school leaver operating a computer. That's what we have. What did we used to have? We used to have a GP cooperative system run by highly qualified, experienced doctors as your first port of call. Now, what we've seen happen to out of hours will in due course happen to the rest of GP services. So you'll have a harder time seeing a doctor, let alone the same doctor. You'll be fobbed off by non-doctors who not only is it bad for them because they're acting outside of their competence and qualifications, but you, it's obvious the risk that this poses to the patients. So more and more people will be harmed, preventably harmed, and some, you know, you know, on an industrial scale, people will be damaged and some will be dying. And let's not forget the uh, the words that have been reported, uttered apparently from Johnson's mouth, let the bodies pile high. Now, we, we know from Sir David King, the former uh, chief medical officer, he estimates 100,000 people have preventably died during the pandemic. And there's no accountability. So they're going to make the preventable mass loss of life a normal feature of healthcare in this country as it is in, in America. Mm. I mean, New Labour used to have this mantra of uh, what matters is what works. And I'm sure what the government would probably say is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people on the left who are kind of scaremongering about the, the implication. It's still going to have the NHS badge on, on, on the front 
And uh, if we can bring in the sort of disciplines, they'll no doubt say, of the uh, of the private sector, uh, that that will be uh, beneficial and we'll get uh, good quality healthcare uh, at a better better value for money. I mean, wh how would you respond to those sorts of uh, statements and propaganda, really? I suppose it is, but that's the kind of thing which I think they'll probably be saying. Yeah, they will be saying, and the, the, the quick response is, it's total nonsense. You know, if you look at the most privatised system, which is America, they spend more than double we do in this country. They have worse outcomes, lower life expectancy, higher infant mortality, higher maternal mortality. These are hard endpoints. You can't argue with those facts. Yet they spend double we do. Over a third of the total cost goes out in administration and profit, a third. Now, prior to privatization back in the late 80s, the NHS was, was fantastically efficient, only spending 5% on overhead. So the trajectory is to waste another 25% on overheads and profit. Now, in, on what planet does that make sense? The private mm -hmm. sector can't deliver efficient healthcare because they fail to do so. And the reason you can make profit in healthcare is quite simple. You avoid sick people, you avoid expensive people, and you certainly avoid people who can't pay. So mm -hmm. what, what, what is being done now is the replication of what we have in the States, which is publicly funded services, that will remain largely, although those services won't be comprehensive anymore. It will be publicly funded, but provided by for-profit companies with a track record of fraud. Mm. Uh, they never admit the fraud. They always settle out of court um, for a fraction of what they've profited. You know, So it's part of the business model to commit a crime and then pay a fraction of what you've made in profit as a settlement. That's the business model in the States. And that's what we're copying. I mean, I have obviously got my criticisms of the new Labour uh, government, and uh, I think they got a lot of things wrong. Um, but when Labour left office in 2010, uh, satisfaction with the National Health Service, notwithstanding some of the concerns I have, with, I think they could have done better, but satisfaction was very high and uh, waiting times were, were, were relatively low. And I just wonder whether, you know, the government's sort of cynical strategy is to... Um, you know, the longer the passage of time, people kind of perhaps forget what they previously had. I wonder if you could maybe just, Bob, briefly set out what's been the changes since the 2012 uh, Health and Social Care Act, indeed since 2010, really, in terms of the uh, sort of health provision and, uh, and how it's deteriorated over that period of time. Or yes, got better no. in certain circumstances. I suspect it hasn't. <laughs> but if there's many areas where it's got better, then let, let's, let's hear that as too. Well, I suppose the only thing that's got better is the propaganda and misdirection. Uh, mm. Everything else has gone south, I'm afraid. So the Health and Social Care Act, the last decade, under the cover of the austerity narrative, we've had a relative defunding of the NHS. So historically, uh, the budget went up 4% every year. Last decade, the average was 1%. So that's a real terms cut of 3% year after year after year. So it's been defunded. The NHS has been shrunk. We've lost 38,000 beds since 2008. So that's a significant proportion of the acute capacity of the NHS. We entered the pandemic with 100,000 vacancies, so 10,000 doctors and 40,000 nurses. And the staff have been totally turned over. 
you know, they've had a, a relative 15 to 20 percent real terms pay cut. So we're losing the very experience that we need in a safe health service. What the doctors want, what the staff want, what the patients want is high quality care, safe care. But that's not what the government wants, and that's not what these private companies want. So the government is doing the dirty work by attacking the contracts. The junior doctor contract dispute in 2016 show, achieved a significant deterioration in their, 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 um, their rights and the protections they had. So the staff have been prepared. Uh, the unions have been docile, if not complicit, in allowing all this to happen. I know certainly from my experience, the BMA actively sabotaged their own industrial action, which had significant public support. And, for, you know, for the first time, doctors had become politicized. You know, they did think they were the first to be attacked. They forgot about the porters and the cleaners and the caterers. But yeah, yeah, cool. never mind, we'll forgive them that. But finally, they realized what was going on. And inevitably, it led to a significant deterioration in morale. So we are we are losing the quality, the organizational memory, and the, the NHS is struggling now. Even before the pandemic, there was a waiting list approaching five million before the pandemic. Now it's gone over five million, and that's providing the government and the BBC this narrative of the NHS can't cope. We must do things differently, and you know, rather helpfully to the privatisation lobby, the Royal College of Surgeons is saying we need to have separate elective surgery centers. Well, that's great, but they never mention who's going to run them. Mm. That's the problem. So you're having these uh, supposedly representative professional bodies who are actually cheerleading for the destruction of the NHS. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because didn't the profession uh, oppose the introduction of the National Health Service in, in the first place? So, uh, which is a rather interesting um, state of affairs. You know, given... Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You know, the BMA went on a national... Uh, propaganda campaign to persuade GPs not to sign up. And Anurin Bevin said he, and the only way he got the GPs on board was to stuff their mouths with, with gold. Mm -hmm. So, But once the GPs realized that um, they were able to provide good care for everybody and the taxpayer was, pay was paying the bill, I don't think many doctors in the current, well, in the NHS as it should be, would object. But what we have now is a demoralized workforce that is routinely uh, abused, put in difficult situations by management. They didn't have protective gear. You know, I, was, I saw a figure today. We have the third, the, in, the, in the world, we have the first, third highest uh, death of medical health professionals after El Salvador and Mexico. Now, this is to our eternal shame that we didn't protect the staff within the NHS. We catastrophically failed to handle the pandemic. We didn't do the basic things at all. Yet we squandered billions and billions on a test and trace system, for example, which failed to prevent further lockdowns. So it didn't achieve what it was set out to achieve. No. Um, so, you know, we're, we're in a very des desperate situation. And you can see, I can see when I talk to people, who don't quite understand how they've been manipulated, how how the frogs have been slowly boiled to death, this slow burn of uh, mm. undermining their conditions, undermining their incomes, undermining the ethos of the NHS. 
if somebody offered them a private sector solution, they'll go for it because mm. anything can be better than what's going on at the moment. That's the mindset. That's the mm. nudging. That's the psychological uh, manipulation that's taken place. Mm. I mean, and obviously you mentioned the terrible tragedy of the healthcare professionals, uh, the, the mortality rate, but uh, the, the, the patient mortality rate with the COVID crisis is per capita one of the highest in the world as well, is it not? Absolutely, yes. So, you know, I, I referred earlier to what Sir David King said, and he, he's not an outspoken chap generally, but he's, he estimated at least 100,000 preventable deaths in this country from COVID. Mm. And the reason we had that was not because of lack of money. There was a magic money tree for private PPE contracts. There mm. was a magic money tree for outsourcing the Deloitte, Serco, Test and Trace. But there was no money tree to support the poor working class on precarious uh, incomes to support the infected people. 80% of them were not supported to stay at home. So the mm. infection was allowed to spread. Yeah. I mean, what we're seeing, it seems to me, Bob, from what you're setting out here and what we've already seen is a, a similar approach to that that was applied to the utilities. Take the water, for example, the water industry, which uh, makes you know, huge I mean, stratospheric um, uh, dividends, uh, pays out stratospheric dividends to a, its shareholders, pays very little in, uh, in corporation tax. And we know that, that you know, the, the water system is, uh, is is in a terrible parlous state with with leaks and uh, and poor quality service and and it seems they're applying that. I mean they've kind of got they've done all the utilities, rail, electricity, and all the rest of it, and obviously now um, really moving into uh, into this area. I mean one, one wonders where they're going to go next and what's been um, Sir Simon Stevens' role in all this because he he was uh, he had a, uh, some involvement did he with 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 United Health in his previous incarnation did he not and he's been elevated to the House of Lords, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what your fears are in that regard too as well, Bob? Yes, so he's had a very interesting trajectory. He went to Oxford with Boris Johnson. Uh, he became a Labour councillor. He was appointed as a Tony Blair health advisor in the early 2000s. He was a cheerleader for these uh, independent treatment centres, which were siphoning off all the easy surgical work, which was highly profitable, into the private sector. He left the NHS, I believe, in 2004, where he then spent a decade working for the world's biggest private health insurer, United Health. Um, and in his later days at United Health, he was president for global expansion. Now, the clue's in the title. You've got a big insurance company wants to expand globally. And he, he went around the world. He was, he was at Davos in 2012. He also presented to the WHO advocating the American managed care model as a sustainable solution to the world's healthcare. The worst healthcare system in the world, he was peddling as a solution to healthcare costs going up. And his idea of fixing a problem is to allow for mass preventable death, 30% uh, waste, and huge profits to CEOs and shareholders. And now he's, um, he was author of several key documents, uh, the five-year forward view, uh, the NHS long-term plan. Now, if, if anybody who didn't have any awareness of health privatization, they would just read the executive summary and the forward at the front, which pays homage to how great the NHS is. 
But it's a cynical deception because if you understand what's gone on before and what all the legislation enables, there's only one conclusion that he wants to drive home the managed care uh, American system into this country, destroying the NHS, rendering it a logo and a funding stream, which is what they themselves uh, gave it shorthand. It would just be a husk of what it used to be. And now he's been elevated to the House of Lords. I wouldn't be surprised that he is given a health minister role, which I believe he can be appointed to now, uh, to drive home his toxic, deadly NHS bill, which will finish the job for the NHS, I'm afraid. Where's the media in all this, uh, Bob? I mean, uh, what, what reportage have we got? Because, I mean, it's, it's, you, you paint a very depressing uh, picture there, but we don't seem to see much of that surfacing on the broadcast and print media yeah well so, you know the if you look at media ownership well you know you know more about that, that than i do but it's right-wing dominated billionaire owned tax exiles who do not believe in public service they have commercial interests in the privatization of the NHS. so that's one group then you have the bbc which is a state controlled broadcaster all the uh, key appointees are government appointees, so they can control the narrative. And then you have the commercial channels. Well, they're going to profit from advertising health insurers. From in due course, I won't be surprised if they're advertising more for drug companies. We see we're constantly bombarded with adverts for Vitality Healthcare, who seem to have very deep pockets. They can sponsor the whole, you know, these premiership football teams. So there are vested interests. There is control of the media, print media, certainly, in very few hands who have their own ideology and vested interests. And we have a muted, castrated, controlled BBC who, you know, recently appointment, appointed an ex-banker from Goldman Sachs to be on mm. their board. So this is what we're dealing with. And, you know, they, they, are, they play a very important role to keep us in the dark. That's one thing but also to nudge us into these false solutions, which are to adopt more and more private sector involvement and never tell us what we're losing. They never mention the word public provision, which is a key found out founding principle of the NHS, because without public provision, you cannot ensure quality, you cannot protect the employees, and you cannot have accountability. You must have public provision. And unfortunately, those, those words, those two simple words are often missing from supposed health campaign groups as well, I'm afraid. Yeah. What about the trade press or the professional uh, uh, press? I mean, are, are they uh, raising any alarm bells or are they sort of going along with it? Uh, I'm afraid, you know, if you look at the uh, white paper and, uh, you know, run down the list of people who have, have supposedly be, been consulted and ha have said zero, that includes Unison. I've got it here in front of me, the Royal College of General Practitioners, the British Medical Association, the Academy of Royal Medical Colleges. So these people are quite happy with us being turned into a dystopian mm. American for-profit system. Do you think now, that's I'm a sure, lack of awareness, Bob, or, uh, or what? I mean, what? No, it's I mean, not a lack of awareness. It's complicity. Right. Now, we, we've seen a pattern across British society where you have a total disconnect between members and leaderships. We've seen mm. that 
in the Labour Party at the moment. It's pretty clear what's going on there. Uh, we see that in the Royal Colleges. We see that in the unions, mm. where you have relatively right-wing leadership and you have a membership that's in the dark. That's what we have, certainly in the British Medical Association, mm. who, as I said earlier, sabotaged their own industrial action, tried to, in 2019, force through a consultant contract, which was worse than the current contract, without a vote, and hoodwink GPs into signing what's called a primary care network contract, which is in fact a way of taking over control of patient lists and their budgets. Mm. So the GPs haven't got a clue what they've signed up to. They just think it's an extra pocket of cash. Mm. They haven't mm. looked the gift horse in the mouth. And the BMA have told them, don't worry, leave it to us. So, mm. you know, on many multiple levels, uh, there has been betrayal by the bodies who should have been fighting for the NHS the loudest. Which creates a problem. I mean, it, I mean, I've I've sort of tweeted out about the need. There's a need for an uprising on a scale that we saw with the proposal for the some of the richest Premier League clubs talking about setting up a, a super league, and uh, there was a massive uh, outpouring of opposition, and they were forced to uh, retreat on that. And this is considerably more important. I mean, I think I put in my tweet about Bill Shankly's quote. You know, it's not a matter of life or death. It's more important than that. Well. That was talking about football. That clearly applies to uh, to to this, does it not? So, I mean, uh, what do we do? How do we kind of you know reach out to people and 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 engender that sort of popular uprising to to force the hand of the government and force them back? You know, it's get, it's getting pretty desperate. Um, you know, the uh, the sort of uh, own goals that the Labour Party made in handing handing this government an 80 MP majority was a, yeah. was a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. um, we have to try and simplify what's going on for people so they really get their head around it. Uh, you know, it's down to people like yourselves, other reputable, genuine, progressive, uh, socialist thinking people to say, look, this is not just about protecting the poor and the sick. Because the real targets of this scam are the middle classes who will be fleeced in due course of their insurance premium because, you know, what's left of the NHS will be slimmer and slimmer. And in mm -hmm. order to restore a comprehensive service, you're going to have to take out top-up insurance. Mm. Now it's the well, we're, already seeing, we're already seeing people doing that, aren't we, to, to some extent? Yeah, I mean, it's happening. Yeah, happening. so you... We're bombarded with adverts. You know, we yeah. can see, you know, all the headlines of the NHS failing. We need to, we need to uh, recruit whatever class people are from and say this is going to affect you in your mm. in your hour of need. Your insurance is not going to be there paying out for your cancer care once you've reached your mm. threshold. And mm. uh, we have to amplify the message. I think we've got to start doing direct action. We certainly need the unions to pull their finger out and and. Uh, you know, smell smell the coffee and and do the right thing by their by their members. No, indeed. Well, I'm hoping that Howard Beckett uh, gets the general secretary role in uh, Unite because he's somebody who I think uh, would very much lead from the the front, uh, and has talked about an explosion of of grassroots uh, activity uh, in the union and uh, you know Unite community branches, which was an innovation that happened I think under Len McCluskey's watch is a great innovation, but it needs to be 
developed. So there's there's potential there, but but that leadership's you know not not been uh, forthcoming. But uh, look, uh, I know we've got you uh, for a for a truncated period this evening, uh, Bob. You're very generous with your time. Normally, uh, stick stick for the hour, but I know, I know you've got to to get away, uh, and we've got you till uh, twenty to eight at the latest. So let me just uh, bring in Sean now and see what uh, reaction we've been getting from our audience this evening. Hi, good evening, and thanks to everyone watching tonight or listening on the podcast. Please don't forget to hit the like button, button, subscribe, and click the icon bell for notifications. You can also sign up to the Resist Movement on www.resistmovement.org.uk. And please do share this important information that Dr. Bob is telling us this evening with all your friends, families, and colleagues. It's really important. Um, just got one question for you uh, tonight. Uh, I'm not sure whether there's a, a football match on, um, but um, we have a question from Atcha John, and he asks, what's happening with zero-hour surgeons, and where's the public in this? Where's the masses in defence? Where's the public debate? I think we've yeah, touched so, on that. Yeah, we, we've touched on that a little bit. Um, I think generally, I'm not quite sure what he means by zero-hour surgeons. If, if he's talking about locums within, within the NHS, I suspect that's what he's talking about. I, I think a lot of people who might have had, um, you know, salaried positions in the NHS, a lot of them are so fed up uh, about the sort of top-down bureaucracy, you know, corporate tyranny that the NHS has become, that maybe they prefer to be freelance and not have to put up with the nonsense in terms of battling resource limitation, working in overstretched emergency care, at least that way they can control their workload. So that, that might be why people are opting to be freelance within the NHS. Um, but I suspect once uh, you know, the corporate control increases, there'll be, a, there'll be a big push to drive down those costs. So you know, there'll be a shrinking window uh, of escape for these people other than, you know, giving up the job or leaving the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, something we were um, just talking about um, before we came on air was the um, protecting, protecting your data. Um, the government plans to hand over our health records to corporations, including the US health insurance giants that you were talking about previously. Um, and people need to opt out of this because it's an absolute scandal. Um, so if you live in England and you want to stop your GP data leaving your GP practice for purposes other than di your direct care and breaching your GP patient confidentiality, you can do so by filling in and giving or posting um, a form. Now, I've asked Gaz to post the link, which should be online now. Uh, so there is a link for you. We've also sent it out in this week's newsletter how you can do that. So you can print out a form from the link on the screen, uh, which is digital.nhs.uk forward slash services forward slash national hyphen data hyphen opt hyphen out. Sorry, that's a bit of a mouthful, but that's just for our people who may be listening on the podcast. Um, have you got anything further you want to add to that, Bob? Yeah, so it's interesting that um, the government, without any publicity whatsoever, quietly released this intention um, on the 12th of May, uh, giving people six weeks to opt out in a very cumbersome way, filling out a piece of paper, 
and submitting it to your GP, uh, it's almost as if they didn't want anybody to know. Yeah. Mm. And uh, that's exactly what the intention was. Now, some campaigners uh, got wind of this. Certainly, I'd recommend if people want to know more about it, that they check out Med Confidential, who have been raising awareness about the exploitation of uh, confidential data since the 2012 Act, in fact. Um, now, they raised the alarm. Open Democracy have written uh, well on this. So, so have Byline, Byline Times. The information is getting out slowly. I'm encouraging any patient I see to opt out. And what it will mean, what, what, what their government are trying to do, they're dressing this up as research and planning. It is absolutely nothing of the sort. They have mechanisms now to do the research and planning. What they were hoping to do is en masse copy everybody's data out of the GP system and put it in a new data bank, which would be open to commercial exploitation. Nothing to do with your health, nothing to do with public planning, public research, because that facility already exists. The NHS represents a gold mine in terms of data. We have the most comprehensive, uh, long-standing uh, patient record of any country in the world. This is really, really valuable stuff. So they want to get their hands on it. Now, can you imagine the power of having your social media information, of having your medical record, and in due course, having you, having all the genomic data that we are currently subsidizing in, in acquiring. The, the UK taxpayer is paying a lot of money to, to, to get to the genomic data of a growing number of the population. Now, the commercial possibilities are mind-boggling if you can put all this data together. Uh, somebody called it, I read an article the other day, called it Cambridge Analytica on steroids. Now, if, if Facebook and Cambridge Analytica can manipulate democracies across the world just based on a questionnaire and develop algorithms to micro-target adverts at you to nudge you in one political direction or the other, can you imagine what they might do with your health data? It's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's shocking. People must take this seriously and act. And I can encourage everybody to opt out. Uh, sorry for butting in. Can you give us some examples of what they might do with that data? And will the government make money out of selling that data? Yeah, so the, the government isn't interested in making money for the taxpayer. They're interested in facilitating corporate looting, just as they did with the vaccine. You know, 95% of the cost of developing the Oxford vaccine was publicly funded. Who's got the rights to the patent and cashing up? AstraZeneca. So we are being taken for mugs. We are subsidizing all these developments just to hand over to the private sector. That's what's yeah. going on. Uh, you know, what can this be used for? Well, uh, you know, if you've got uh, dementia and you've got a house, well, maybe some asset asset release company might be interested in that data set so they can come on uh, and market to vulnerable people into giving up equity in their house. That might be one possibility. In fact, Theresa May in the 2017 election um, got caught out on the dementia tax, right? Which was essentially, if you got admitted to hospital with a dubious diagnosis based on a GP questionnaire of dementia, 
and you needed permanent care, the government would have been able to sell off your house to pay for your care. That's what was going on with the dementia tax. You know, I'll leave it to your imagination. These companies no. are not interested in the public good. They're interested in control, power, and making money. Yeah. Thanks very much, Bob. We, we better leave it there because I know Bob's got to uh, shoot off. I'm sorry, uh, Sean. Was you about to come in with a very quick point, Sean? Or no, I was just going to say, surely this would be against the uh, GDPR regulations. Um, you know, naturally, people think. You know, I've been discussing this with people, and they say, "Oh, well, you know, they can't do that. It's it's GDPR." Um, but they can, and people need to wake up to this. Yeah, yeah, they they can, well, they can do whatever they like because they've they've set up toothless regulators to give us the mirage of some some challenge and some process. Uh, I'll give you another example in the Royal Free London London Teaching Hospital. They gave away to Google. 1.6 million patient records. Nobody's gone to jail for that. That was a complete breach of uh, data protection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if a company comes foul of GDPR and pays five or maybe one percent of the potential profit, where's the problem? Yeah. For them, there's no problem. There's no yeah. morality in this. There's no ethics in this. It's just about money. And that's what people need to get their head around. We have a mirage of democracy. We have a mirage of regulation. And we certainly have mirage of independent media. Right. Well, thanks very much indeed, Bob. We better let you go now. Thank you uh, for, because I know you were saying you were trying, trying to try and get away for half past seven. You've given us an extra 10 minutes. So I really uh, do appreciate that. And uh, thanks, everybody, for watching this evening. Two call, uh, calls to arms there, really, uh, on uh, the issue of uh, data, uh, patient data being uh, distributed. And uh, and obviously, we need to challenge that. And that's something that uh, viewers and our members can get involved with in local campaigns up and down the country. And of course, uh, raising awareness about the implications of this health bill. And uh, as I've said, we need an uprising. And that can only happen if we are mobilized on the ground and we alert people to what the government are planning and to just repeat Nye Bevan's uh, maxim that, uh, you know, the NHS will last for as long as there are folks willing, with a faith, uh, willing to, to fight for it. We've absolutely got to fight for it now. So thanks for watching this evening. Next week we'll be uh, back with uh, Rod Driver with the Elephant in the Room series at 7pm. So I look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for watching and good night.